Lest We Forget podcast, a historical podcast by Tenement Yard Media. I'm Gabrielle, your host for this episode. Before we begin, I should note that academic scholarship on the 1918 anti-Chinese riots are limited. As such, a bulk of the research of this singular event comes from Howard Johnson's academic paper, The Anti-Chinese Riots of 1918 in Jamaica, published in the Caribbean Quarterly in 1982. The Chinese arrived in the Caribbean through indentorship, which took place after the full emancipation of enslaved Africans, which occurred in the British West Indies in 1838. Indentorship was a means to meet the white planters' demand for cheap labour, now that slavery had been abolished, and the Chinese became one of these indentured populations. Specifically to Jamaica, they arrived on the island in 1854. In that year, on July 30, 224 Chinese people out of 267 travellers arrived in Jamaica by way of Epsom from Hong Kong. 57 of the remaining persons were hospitalised. On November 1 of that same year, a second group consisting of 197 Chinese people arrived in Kingston via a ship called Vampire. They were a part of 1,042 contracted for work on the Panama Railroad. A decade later, a third group of 200 arrived in the island from British Guyana, Trinidad and Panama. In 1884, the last group of 694 Chinese laborers from Hong Kong via San Francisco and Panama arrived on a ship called Prince Alexander. However, when the Chinese realized that their labor contracts were being violated, they protested, which led to the state deploying law enforcement leading to the death of a worker. As such, soon after, many Chinese laborers left the plantations for commercial endeavors. With the expansion of the banana export business, persons in the industry, especially small rural farmers, had more purchasing power, and so many Chinese people went into the grocery retail business. But unlike small black grocery retail businesses that failed due to insufficient capital and a lack of business experience, the Jamaican Chinese population thrived. By 1908, records showed that of the almost 6,303 Chinese persons on the island, 834 were in the retail business. A 1918 article published in the Daily Gleaner, the island's local newspaper, stated that the Chinese shopkeepers created, quote, a bridge between the people and the wholesale dealer, end quote. The Chinese merchants' main selling products included salted dried fish, fresh fish, beef, pork, cornmeal, flour, and rice. Their shops had a unique system at the time where they established a chain of shops which they left to be operated by other Chinese assistants or persons from the rural community. Despite the Chinese business success, there were complaints, especially from their competitors. In the Gleaner, letters that referred to the Chinese as Yellow Plague, Yellow Peril, and Locust Invasion were written. One of the letters stated, Let us in heaven's name wake up and do something, for these people are coming, coming, always coming. Can anything be done to stem this Chinese invasion? Are these people to be allowed to overwhelm us? 
In October of 1917, the parochial board of St. Anne ushered in a resolution which, in their opinion, was to protect other competitors from the Chinese shopkeepers. They went on to state that continuous Chinese business success would lead to dire consequences. In their words, directly or indirectly they are the causes of many bankruptcies, vagrants, paupers, and a very large percentage of our best citizens who have left the island for foreign parts have lost their business or jobs on this account. Then, A.B. Lowe, a member of the St. James Board, was quoted in a January 7, 1918 Daily Gleaner article by saying the following in regards to Chinese shopkeepers. His success is due to the fact that he sells to people who cannot detect it. It is not because he has a sharp business intellect, but that is sharpened by the fact that he knows no bounds. The sin in China being not to steal but being caught. He has forced some of our best people out of shopkeeping. Besides, he's very immoral, and on this account alone ought to be kept out. This sense of the Chinese being immoral was echoed in other parts of society as the population was blamed for what many people believed to be the decay of society's morals. With the introduction of Chinese speaker power and drop pan, the upper class became vocal of Chinese gambling practices. The Chinese were also blamed for what is believed to be an increase in alcohol consumption in society, and many Chinese people were accused of being involved in opium consumption. This anti-Chinese sentiment among sections of the Jamaican population would boil over come July 1918, when a Chinese shopkeeper found out that his black woman lover was apparently engaging in infidelity. This incident laid the groundwork for the first anti-Chinese riots in Jamaica. On July 7, 1918, Feng Xiu, a Chinese retail businessman, left his shop in the care of his black lover, Caroline Lindo. However, unbeknownst to Caroline, Feng returned the same night around 11 p.m., and upon his return, he was in for a surprise. He saw Caroline in an intimate position with acting Corporal MacDonald, who was in charge of the Yuatan police station. Then Feng Xiu and some of his Chinese friends beat MacDonald, who afterwards escaped in nearby bushes. Instead of returning to the station, however, MacDonald remained hidden for two days and would reappear at Yuatan police station those two days later on Tuesday, July 9. In MacDonald's absence, the power of community gossip took center stage and chaos broke out. While MacDonald was hiding, a rumor developed all over the community that he had been murdered by Feng Xiu. The tale that circulated through the town was that MacDonald told to Feng Xiu that he was in violation of the law that prohibits him from selling on Sunday, and as a result, Feng Xiu murdered him. The story continued by saying that when MacDonald's co-workers went out looking for him, they found his bed covered in blood. There was another apparent rumor that the officer was killed, pickled, and sold as salt pork. Upon hearing the rumors, police officers went searching for MacDonald come Monday morning, but as I said, MacDonald was still in hiding and so their operation was in vain. But this did not stop community members, 
as later on that day an angry crowd descended upon the police station. This crowd grew into a mob which ended up looting four shops operating by Chinese people in Yuatan. The next morning it was reported that the streets of the community were paved with cornmeal, flour and salt as a result of the looting. The rumors of McDonald's murder by the hands of the Chinese would spread to other towns and other crimes against Chinese businesses erupted. On Tuesday in Linstead, five Chinese shops were looted where the mob shouted, Color for color! Several Chinese men hid in one of the shops, and when the mob, consisting of around 800 to 1,000 persons, learned about this, they stoned the establishment. Women were also involved in the rioting at Linstead. Julia Harris gave this account. As a man, black man carrying stone, woman, black girls, nice fat black girls carrying stone and them give to the man and them fling to and the man them fling to. If the man them fling and lick down the Chinese shop. Even though McDonald had shown up at this point, people would look at his bruises and claim it was not the man missing and the rumour took on a life of its own. In the villages of Pear Tree Grove and Caron Hall in St. Mary, residents were told that the destruction of Chinese shops was ordered by the government and this set residents to go out and vandalize multiple Chinese-owned shops in St. Mary. A St. Mary District Constable Obadiah Sterling rode through the street on his horse urging residents to destroy Chinese shops. In the eyes of the residents, Mr. Sterling's declaration led some legitimacy to the rumor that these anti-Chinese actions were government orders. An Emmanuel Lord of the District of Mongrave gave an eyewitness accounts of the events that took place in St. Mary. They said they come from Yuatan. They said the policeman corporal deal with the Chinese sweetheart, so the Chinese man shoot him. And the government said must mash down every damn Chinese shop. Then you have about 50 people, and when them come now, the district people join with them. Them mash up the shop and take out every guard, goods and teeth the Chinese man clothes and dog and fowl, setting fowl pan -ness. The next few days saw attacks on Chinese-operated shops spreading to the parishes of St. Anne and Clarendon. Throughout the week of July 7, Chinese shops were targeted, just Chinese shops, which historian Howard Johnson made note of. He said, quote, it is important to note that in these riots, violence was directed primarily at property rather than at persons. These attacks on property were not indiscriminate, but aimed very specifically at shops operated by the Chinese. The main intention of the rioters was to drive out the Chinese from those areas where they had established themselves in business. There is no evidence that the property of the ethnic minorities was attacked nor did the rioters destroy Creole-owned shops." End quote. A Gleaner article published on the 11th of July made the theory that the crimes brought against Chinese grocery businesses could be because of tensions and anxieties that lowered society discipline due to the ongoing war. World War I was occurring at this time. Nevertheless, by the time the rioting was brought under control by the authorities, there was widespread damage to Chinese businesses 
dispute a rioting which took place in the parishes of St. Catherine, St. Mary, Clarendon and St. Anne. In the end, almost 452 persons were arrested and 300 convicted. After the 1918 riots, anti-Chinese sentiments did not die down. They showed up in newspapers and other media outlets alike. On the ground, multiple fires were set to different Chinese-owned businesses throughout the 1920s. In January of 1923, during his opening statements of an arson case of a Kingston Chinese shop, Norman Washington Manley, then a young barrister, said, Wherever there's a fire, there's a Chinaman. On July 28, 1922, George Tai Ti became the first Chinese person to practice law in Jamaica, and incidentally, it was during this year that the parochial board of St. Andrew declared that the government should take action to prevent Chinese people from coming into Jamaica. Almost a decade later, in 1931, the Jamaican government asked Hong Kong to not issue passports to Chinese immigrants. Then, immigration restrictions consisting of passing a language and physical test were placed on Chinese immigrants. So it should come as no surprise that 20 years after the first riot, Chinese businesses were once again targeted in the midst of societal tensions that were occurring in Jamaica and the wider Caribbean. In the 1930s, countries in the British West Indies experienced widespread workers' organizing and subsequent labor riots. Trinidad and Tobago, Belize, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Barbados, Guyana, and St. Lucia all experienced labor riots. Jamaica was no exception. And in future episodes, we will explore more about the 1930s labor riots in each of these countries. However, for the importance of this episode, we'll give a brief overview of the 1930s labor riots in Jamaica. At this time on the island, the majority of the working class was poor. Records from 1935 show that the 184,150 persons which made up 92% of the working class earned less than 25 shillings per week. Of this 92%, only 71% received an average of 14 shillings per week. Still in that year, only 466 persons earned over £1,000. Low wages among workers during this period of global recession, which began in 1929 after the US Wall Street crash, underemployment and unemployment among the rest of the population, and insufficient rights given to the disenfranchised population of the country fueled hard times on the island. In a 1987 interview for an oral history project at the University of the West Indies, Mona, Lucius Watson, a dock workers activist, said this. In those days, seven and eight-year-old boys had to be working for themselves and tilling for themselves at one shilling a day. Had soft conditions in the rest of the country, oh Lord, master the conditions, it was very miserable. For you had men who was working shoving handcart for China getting 18 shilling a week, and all those things. Unemployment was bad, 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 bad. It was terrible. 
On May 30, 1935, a group of workers loading bananas in St. Mary went on strike. Eight days later in Trelawney, another strike occurred, but this time it was port workers and one worker was shot dead by the police. Days later in Kingston, banana loaders went on strike and a woman was wounded. Almost two and a half years later, the strikes escalated. In December of 1937, a group of workers on the Surge Island estate in St. Thomas went on strike over poor wages. By January 4, 1938, almost 500 workers joined in. Police were called to the scene which saw 63 persons being arrested in the following days. By March 1938, dissatisfaction among workers was island-wide, but the concentration was in Westmoreland. The parish was seeing a boom in people due to rapid employment taking place in the sugar industry. But on May 2, workers at the Frome Sugar Estate went on strike over low wages. On May 4, four persons were killed by police officers on the scene and 96 arrested. The Frome strikes created a ripple effect throughout the island and with outspoken union organisers and workers' activists such as Robert Rumble, Alexander Bustamante, William Grant, Agnes Bernard, Alan Coombs and numerous others, the labour strikes of 1938 eventually made their way to Kingston. Workers at the Capitals Wharf put forward their demands for a wage increase and by the end of the second week of May, a strike erupted amongst the workers. A week later, on the 23rd of May, Alexander Bustamante called a meeting with the workers. However, trouble occurred and police officers started to clash with the workers. Then many workers in Kingston also refused to work and marched through the city's streets. This forced many businesses to put up shutters and force closure. The workers also forced some businesses to close. As such, Kingston was brought to a standstill and only a few businesses remained open. And it was here that the second anti-Chinese riots took place. On the same day, a crowd descended upon Chinese-owned establishments and rough-handled those who resisted the close. Some demonstrators yelled, This a black man, dear! One man ordered a Chinese business operator who was in his store on Princess Street to Come out, make we beat you! Other people in the crowd shouted, All Chinamen's shop must close and black man's shop must open. A black woman, Mrs. Yu Gordon, who operated a shop at the intersection of Pink Lane and Charles Street, stated in relation to the riots, Them say, crowd coming, close up. I said no, I'm not closing. So they come right on Charles Street and they look and see me behind the counter and they say, Oh, black man open, you're tiny open. All the Chinese them close, but the black people them open up. As long as you're black, them say you can't open up, but Chinese must close. In his book, Freedom's Children, the 1938 Labour Rebellion and the Birth of Modern Jamaica, historian Dr. Colin Palmer notes, quote, The assault on the oppressive status quo became overtly racialized in a physical sense with these assaults on Chinese enterprises. But the Chinese were not a part of the power elite and had no history of institutional mistreatment of black Jamaicans. They were, however, sharp entrepreneurs 
and some people looked askance at their success and the seeming lack of respect for their customers. Years of acute resentment against the Chinese, their upward mobility, and their entrepreneurial successes were now finding a violent expression. End quote. The attacks on Kingston's Chinese businesses, strikes, and protests of the day made the 23rd of May one of the most significant days of the 1930s labor strikes in Jamaica. In response to these events, the government sent 400 police officers, 80 troops, 250 special constables, and 100 members of the militia to the streets. Other events would happen after, which we'll discuss when we explore the 1930s labor strikes in full detail. But as it pertains to the Chinese, in July 1939, almost a year after the attacks on Chinese business operators in Kingston, H. Beckett, head of the West Indian Department in the Colonial Office, said, There is a good deal of anti-Chinese feeling in Jamaica. The Chinese have practically colored the retail trade. Also, of course, if you go looting, it's probable that the shop will be a Chinese one for that reason. A year later, in 1940, the government of Jamaica barred Chinese people from entering the country, with the exception being diplomats, tourists, and students with permits. Then in 1947, the Chinese were allowed a quarter of bringing 20 wives and children in total to the island. Still, a few years after Jamaica gained independence in 1962, one incident would once again stir up anti-Chinese riots. And just like the first one, it all began in a grocery shop. Continuing into the 1950s and early 1960s, there existed instances of attacks on Chinese businesses, although not on the same scale as the riot of 1918 and 1938. For instance, political scientist Dr. Obika Gray, in his book Radicalism and Social Change in Jamaica, 1960-1972, says, In fact, by October 1960, the Chinese again became targets of racial attacks, as tensions produced by high unemployment in Kingston and black resentment against Chinese retailers and Chinese overrepresentation in commercial establishments focused on this group. Then, with the rise of black consciousness in Jamaica beginning in the early 1960s, the Chinese population also came under attack for their dominance in certain industries when the equivalent black population was overlooked. Amy Jack Garvey, widow of Marcus Garvey, in a 1960 Gleaner article, quoted her husband as having said, As black men and women, you must stand up and claim your country. Dedicate your lives to Jamaica. Acquire the economic stability the 90% of the population should have in relation to the 30,000 Chinese here. As Dr. Abika Gray stated, quote, the occasion for this backlash came when a section of the black lower middle class, those who had acquired the education, comportment, and know-how to aspire to positions as clerks, secretaries, bank tellers, salespersons, and front office staffers, became embroiled in a now familiar conflict, opposition to an alleged Chinese monopoly of coveted positions. 
In this case, opposition was directed not at Chinese retailers but against an alleged overrepresentation of Chinese nationals in positions requiring the handling of tasks and personnel in banking, tourism and sales. To this outcry, some Chinese Jamaicans retaliated. One letter written to the editor in the Jamaica Gleaner said, All I can say now is, be careful all of you who are teaching race hatred, lest the present situation in Alabama does not develop here in years to come, but with the Chinese and white Jamaicans being victimized. This whole concept now held by many Afro-Jamaicans, that Jamaica is a black man's country and black man must rule no matter what, even if the country is probably ruined in the process, is all wrong and makes a complete mockery of our motto. For all listeners who are not aware, the national motto of Jamaica at this time, and still is, out of many, one people. Despite the letter, however, throughout the 1960s, the animosity towards Chinese business owners still persisted. Then came 1965. The country was already experiencing high underemployment and unemployment among the general population. But then in August of that year, England put restrictions on immigrants coming from the Commonwealth. This means that previously Jamaicans could be among the many 28,800 persons who could migrate to England for work. However, as of August 1965, that quota dropped to 8,500. Frustration among the disenfranchised population rang high and it would let loose a few days after England's new immigration policy was announced. On August 28, 1965, a black sales clerk named Joyce Copeland made a police report that she had a dispute with her Chinese boss over a non-payment regarding a radio. According to Copeland, she was then beaten by her Chinese employer, Liu, and his two brothers. However, according to Dr. Victor Chang in his November 2017 speech at the Chinese Benevolent Association, there's another version of the story. According to Dr. Chang, Joyce Copeland was in a relationship with her employer and when his Chinese wife returned from China to live with him, she was asked to leave their house in Vineyard Town. Apparently Copeland refused to leave and Liu physically attacked her and kicked her multiple times. Whatever the correct story was, the ending was that Joyce Copeland was physically harmed by Liu and when the news reached the wider population, the third anti-Chinese riot in Jamaica's history took place. In parts of Kingston, a reported crowd of around 300 persons descended upon Chinese-owned businesses. Within a week, many shops were looted, stoned, and some set ablaze. In response, many Chinese Jamaicans immigrated to the United States, England, and Canada. A decade later, when political violence began to plague the island, Prime Minister Michael Manley's embrace of leftist politics and his optics of support of black consciousness, many middle-upper-class Jamaicans would leave the island. The Chinese, where the majority of this population was in the middle-upper-class, followed suit. Data shows that in 1970, there were 11,710 Chinese people living in the country. By 1982, that figure fell to 5,320. 
In relation to all three anti-Chinese riots that took place in Jamaica, Dr. Howard Johnson said, quote, The riots of 1918 were more extensive and more sustained than those of 1938 and 1965. Whereas the riots of 1918 spread to the rural villages and towns in the parishes of St. Catherine, St. Anne, St. Mary and Clarendon, the latter riots were largely confined to the city of Kingston. In the second place, the 1918 riots were directed at the Chinese as a racial group. The later riots, the Chinese as members of a prosperous middle class." End quote. However, Lucius Watson in his account as an eyewitness to the 1938 anti-Chinese riots said, The Chinese used to live amongst the low class people till they start to grow up. Chinese start to come up and come up. Hear what the Chinese used to do when them come here. They used to laundry, used to do cultivation, cash crop and laundry and open shop. That was their trade and they build themselves right up and up and they left us, blacks, same place. And with that, we call an end to today's episode. To view the sources used in this episode and our recommendations to learn more about the topic, visit our website at tenementyardmedia.com. A transcript of this episode will be available five days after it has been posted to podcast outlets. And remember, we'd love to hear from you. Follow our social media pages at tenementyard underscore on both Instagram and Twitter to view additional postings on this episode and updates on other content created by Tenement Yard Media. We're also open to conversation about this and other episodes and all happenings around Caribbean history and culture. And just a quick note before we leave, we're over on Patreon at patreon.com slash tenementyardmedia if you'd like to support the show with a monthly donation of as little as one dollar. You can also make a donation of your choice at tenementyardmedia.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Gabrielle, and this has been Lest We Forget, a historical podcast from Tenement Yard Media.